You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Mike Green, I'm here in Northern California. I'm really excited because this is a little bit of a change of pace. I'm going to sit down with Christina Ramirez, who's a professor at UCLA at the Fielding School of Public Health. Christina, you're a professor of biostatistics. Yeah. Can you tell me very quickly what biostatistics is? So, um, yeah, hi, and uh, happy to be here. So biostatistics really is applying statistics and math to health data or uh, biologic data or, or medical data. And it's, um, I love being a statistician because we get to play in everybody's playground. Everybody has data, everybody has questions, we have answers. And so I, I really uh, love uh, using mathematics to be able to answer people's questions. And so you, you come from a background in terms of mathematics. You studied at Caltech. You obviously are, are extraordinary in terms of your ability to convey mathematics, because that's really what we're going to talk about, is the ability to think about the data and to look at the data in graphical form that often carries a message or information that may be lost when we're looking at large data sets. The reason, obviously, that we're having you on is to talk about the coronavirus dynamic. And one of the reasons that this is so fascinating to me, because this is actually the first situation in which most Americans have really been exposed to a large-scale data project, right? We, right? we haven't seen something like this before. And so when you look at the data sets as they're being presented, do you think that this is a good introduction to biostatistics for most people? Or do you think that there's something that is missing in the data set that, that maybe is not being clearly communicated? Well, uh, I'm actually very happy that um, data sets are being made publicly available. And I'm also happy that people are interested in uh, statistics and data science. Uh, there is real power in data. Um, especially at first, there was real problems in accessing quality data sets. And then the New York Times and the Atlantic with the COVID tracking project, as well as 1.3 acres and various other um, enterprises uh, went and made all the data publicly available because we really like real-time data. As uh, the coronavirus um, spreads, we really need to have up-to-date data to make uh, up-to-date um, policy suggestions and solutions. And uh, so I'm really grateful for um, these companies um, really making these data available, having the APIs that you can uh, download it and making it readily usable. And so I'm also quite uh, happy that uh, people are becoming interested in data science. And if you are, uh, and I really hope, especially young people, really get interested in mathematics, data science, and statistics, because I really think it is the future. Well, I, I completely agree with that, and I'm extremely excited, among other things. I mean, it's it's very powerful. We often hear about the shortage of women in STEM, and so to have someone like yourself uh, step forward and be willing to talk about these da this data, how you would analyze it, what some of the implications or shortcomings of it, I think is actually very powerful. And so I hope that 
um, people take from this message, the excitement and the potential gift that is being given in terms of getting people with a wide variety of backgrounds excited and interested in this, right? We were motivated for the first time about data in a way we might not have been before, right? But I, I tend to wonder if the data sets that we're receiving are adequate. I know here in Marin, people are very focused on the local data components, right? How many hospitalizations, cases, deaths are associated with our local region, and we've been given instructions in terms of what will allow us to regain our freedom in various forms based on case numbers, fatalities, et cetera. Kids are no longer in school. They're you know, studying from home. And I'd love to talk and explore some of those dynamics, although those tend to be politically charged. And so I'll try to keep those components out. But when you look at that data, are people able to focus on the right data? Is the data set that we're receiving robust enough to allow people to do the sort of analysis that they really want to or should would hope to be able to do? Right. Um, you, you bring up a very good point. We are um, limited as statisticians by the quality of the data sets. And I, I do wish we had better quality data in terms of testing, in terms of hospitalizations. Some, uh, some locations have excellent data and some, they need a little bit more work on uh, their data sets because I would love to have high quality hospitalization data, high quality testing data. We need to have uniform definitions um, across the different locations and localities. I know uh, places like COVID Tracking Project would scrape all of these local places do their best to try and integrate everything. But it would be nice to have everything sort of uniform where every hospital was um, reporting their number of beds that they have available, how much of their surge capacity, how many of them um, are COVID positive. If every hospital did that, we'd be able to do uh, a lot better data. I understand that there's privacy concerns around uh, producing statistics like age, race, ethnicity, comorbidities, because we don't want to have uh, personally identifying characteristics. And we do have some statistical methods that uh, can help with that. But it would be really um, nice to have um, that type of quality data across every location, because then we could really have uh, definitive answers. Well, this, this brings up I think a really important part to data science, right, which is this dynamic of kind of garbage in, garbage out, right? And I know um, my wife has shown an extreme interest in terms of interest in tracking this sort of stuff. And I've been forced to say, you know, Jen, sure. I don't think the data that we're getting allows us to do what you want it to do, right? It, like we just mm -hmm. can't derive the information content from it. Um, you bring up the really good points in terms of privacy, et cetera, but there's also just the broader issue of we've never really had the incentive structure outside of coding for, you know, billable items, which tends to happen on a state by state basis uh, to the extent that it's done within the Medicare community. You know, that'll have different code dynamics. But there's actually been an incentive in many ways within the healthcare community to code data in a way that is actually restrictive, right, that prevents people from analyzing a lot of this data for a variety of reasons. Does that sound right to you? Is that is that a fair assessment? Yes, uh, because we do have laws like HIPAA, so we cannot have personally identifying characteristics. And so um, that does prevent us from doing very individualized uh, modeling. And so um, 
And so, yeah, so there is a balance between privacy and uh, data prediction. Well, and even within the the broader dynamics of the healthcare system, right? I mean, when you think about the dynamics of coding for comorbidities, right? Even if we were to privacy protect that, there's not really a unified standard on a nationwide basis, right? Part of the dynamic is, is on a state-by-state basis that tends to be somewhat different. It, correct me, and anything I'm saying is wrong in terms of my understanding of it. Well, um, I think the ICD um, uh, diagnostic codes are uniform across they are uniform. Uh, uh, the U.S., and so uh, these get revised. And um, But I guess it's up to the individual doctors on what they put as primary diagnosis and contributing factors. So I, I know that um, there's been a lot of press on um, death certificates and whether or not they are coded as a COVID death or... Um, sort of um, uh, death from COVID or death with COVID. And I know that there has been some concern about that. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N-Ads.com. Well, so that, that brings up a good point. And, and obviously, it's a very politically charged dynamic, right? Are people being improperly coded from coronavirus when they died you know, because of other components, right? So someone who happens to have coronavirus that dies from a melanoma, uh, for example, would be listed among the dead or could be listed. It's actually discretionary, right? Whether they're listed among those who are affected by coronavirus. Is that that's a fair observation? or? Um, yeah, so that one is a little bit more of the gray area. So ones where someone dies in a motorcycle crash and then they get tested for COVID. And if they are listed as a COVID death, that might be um, a little suspect. But, you know, maybe COVID contributed to the death of the person that had melanoma. Maybe they got pneumonia and the melanoma put them in a, a weakened state. And so there, there are some judgment calls with that. For the motorcycle crash, that one, um, you know, they, is a they, little they, bit. But they wouldn't have crashed if they hadn't sneezed, right? So yeah, not... maybe, maybe. So uh, yeah, so, it's left to the coroner or the, uh, the the physician that makes the call. But this is ultimately part of what I was referring to is, is the discretion associated with it, right? So there is a question of how does the physician or the hospital code, and particularly in an environment in which the healthcare system is straining, not necessarily under the burden of care for coronavirus, but because of the absence of patients, the absence of billable events, there may be distinct incentives that encourage um, aggressive coding, shall we say, or right. aggressive diagnosis. Is, is that something that you are worried could be affecting data sets as we look at them? Um, I mean, it's always a possibility, and we always worry about the quality of our data sets. But you actually bring up a good point of, um, it's a little bit different from what you were saying, but um, where we're treating COVID as sort of the only disease, and we are getting excess mortality based on uh, people being afraid to come into care. So we, we see people having heart attacks, strokes at home because they're too afraid to go seek care. Um, cancer screenings not being done, cancer treatments uh, being delayed because of COVID. And all of these really should be accounted for when we're looking at deaths, maybe not attributable to COVID 
itself, but because of um, uh, sort of uh, an indirect COVID effect. Well, and that, that indirect effect is becoming more pronounced. I mean, in our prior discussions, you brought up the example of um, the sort of data set that we would normally hope to cheer, right? But there's been a 50% reduction in the reporting of child abuse. So yes. I, I know in my household with my kids constantly home, the, the uh, 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 desire to occasionally abuse them is extremely <laughs> aggressive, right? Maybe maybe punish is the better word I'm looking for there. Right. But we, we clearly have not seen that actually happen. And so this exactly. is a byproduct of the loss of resources in terms of those who would normally report it. Can you, can you share some thoughts on that? Yes, so um, teachers and school administrators are the, the largest reporters of child abuse. These are people that see children every day and they know when things are abnormal, if they notice bruises, scratches, broken bones, and they're the most likely to report child abuse. And uh, during these COVID lockdowns, we've seen a 51% decrease in um, child abuse uh, reports. And we don't um, really think that um, that child abuse has stopped. And so I'm uh, very worried of the effect of lockdowns on children because as, as um, uh, people are worried about losing their jobs, uh, being laid off, reductions in income, this increases anxiety. And um, for these people, um, maybe they're taking out some of their anxiety on their children. And I do worry about that. And we're seeing increases in calls to suicide hotlines, drug overdoses, alcohol abuse. And so we are having um, high rates of anxiety, deaths of despair um, that are being caused by um, by COVID. Well, being, being, being caused by being caused by COVID and the policies associated with it more than, than COVID itself, I would, I would imagine is, is what you were referring to. Right. Um, and so uh, economics has a lot to do with health. And so um, there have been reports showing that when uh, people lose their jobs, there, there is a subsequent reduction in life expectancy. We see increases in suicide rates drug addiction, alcohol addiction, drug overdoses. And so um, uh, the suicide hotlines have increased. Um, we have surveys that are showing that people's anxiety and depression levels are, are really high. People are very uncertain and they're scared about the future. And now with uh, schools, uh, many schools not opening, this is gonna add a lot of stress to people. And I really worry about that, especially um, uh, you know, single single parents. And if they have young kids, are they going to have to choose between uh, watching their kids and uh, being able to provide for them? And so I'm really worried that we're going to create this structural inequality um, because the people who are more likely to be essential workers, um, if they have young kids, are they going to have to choose between providing for them and uh, being able to watch their kids and putting people in a in an impossible situation. Well, and, so and, and and if we try to dimensionalize this, right? So we have seen this, and and I'm sure you're much more intimately familiar with the data than I am. But when we look back at the global financial crisis in 2008, we have a reasonable reference where we know that suicides increased. We know that reported right. rates of child abuse increased. We know that reported 
you know, rates of stress, anxiety, depression, et cetera, increased quite significantly. As you pointed out, there's a statistically significant increase in mortality associated with those types of financial events. When we think about the impact, particularly in things of, in, in items like excess deaths, which in many cases people are arguing that the excess deaths that we're experiencing on a global basis and in the U.S. are indicative of underreporting of COVID fatalities. If we adjust for those events, right, and I'm not suggesting that you've done that specific work, but if we adjust for those events, that would actually suggest that excess mortality or mortality expectations, to be more precise, should have risen regardless of coronavirus itself, just given the economic events that we've seen. Is that is that a fair assessment? Yeah, so it depends how um, excess deaths are coded. And so um, suicides and overdoses are not included in the um, ICD codes for excess mortality. And so these statistics, we will, we will only know later. There is a, a lag in reporting. So when they're talking about excess mortalities, they're really um, not including these deaths of despair, accidents, um, and things like that. And so they have very specific codes that they use for deaths. So when they say all-cause mortality, it's not quite all-cause. And so you can look at the CDC's website to see exactly which ones um, are being coded for in their excess mortality statistics. And as of, I think yesterday, they're saying that there's uh, 56,000 um, excess mortality uh, that might not be due to COVID. That might not be due. And what is the, what is the cumulative excess mortality at this point? Uh, I think it's 56,000 uh, total. Okay. Um, the, um, and so they look at the excess mortality, they look at the number of uh, COVID deaths, and it's just a, a simple subtraction, and it was around 56,000. And and we have seen uh, reports um, of people having heart attacks in their home, uh, having strokes at their home, and these would be included in these excess mortality, but it also could be uh, COVID deaths that go unreported. We don't really know. But uh, 56,000 is, is, is quite a, a large number. Yeah, that, that is a significant number, and it's, it, it is important. When we think about the dynamics of how to think about the risk factors associated with coronavirus, right, one of the statistics that I'm drawn to is the extraordinary level of excess mortality amongst the older population, right, and the risks yes. of death associated with that. Can, can you help share some of the statistics associated with that, like if, as a— absolutely. Slightly, you know, as, as a slightly overweight 50-year-old, um, should I, or my wife may dispute the uh, slightly part, but if, if I think about the the actual risks that I or somebody younger than myself are facing, is this something that we should be panicked about, that we should be particularly concerned about? So we be need gentle. to look at, yeah, uh, well, we need to look at the data in, uh, in perspective. And so from the New York Times, um, and, the, and looking at just nursing home deaths, so, um, Nursing homes uh, account for 8% of uh, the cases and 41% of the deaths. And this 41% wow. is likely a massive underestimate because um, not every um, state has reported and uh, the reporting requirements were not um, uh, in place for nursing homes having to report COVID cases and deaths uh, until, um, I forget which time, but I think it was around May where they, uh, so we have had a lot of nursing home deaths that maybe weren't reported, but uh, of the ones reported, 
41% of the deaths have been in nursing homes. So we're talking about 8% of the cases having 41% of the deaths. And New York um, actually didn't count nursing home deaths if they died in the hospital. And so we're looking at, uh, if you're looking at underreporting of COVID deaths, uh, probably in nursing homes there are. But if you look at certain states, in Connecticut, 73% of the deaths that were reported were in nursing homes. Rhode Island, 79%. And so for people in nursing homes, the risk is very great. And I do not want to uh, uh, diminish that risk at all. I mean, these people have a real risk of very adverse outcomes and death uh, due to COVID. And if you look at the CDC's age break statistics, 80% of the deaths are in people over 65. And, um, and if you look at the young people, and so um, if we look at um, kids under 14 years old, in the entirety of the US, you know, we've had um, over 150,000 deaths due to COVID, 49 deaths total have been in children under 14 years, according to the uh, Centers for Disease Control. We've had 185 pediatric flu deaths for the 2019-2020 uh, uh, flu season, 185 deaths due to flu and 49 uh, due to COVID. So young people, in particular those under 14, really seemed, I mean, thankfully, uh, spared from significant morbidity and mortality due to COVID. And the risks do increase with age. And so um, uh, under 54 uh, is about 5% of the deaths. And so you so your age one about, uh, about I'm on 5% the edge. Yeah. In your, uh, or in your uh, age group. And so we really need to look at these risks. I don't want to minimize them. You know, COVID, COVID is real. But um, the real significant risk of morbidity and mortality really increases with age and also with uh, comorbidities. And most people um, uh, have more than one comorbidity, especially um, as we age, it seems like we, we collect comorbidities and hypertension, um, diabetes, obesity are real ones that we should worry even outside of COVID, you know, just in terms of cardiovascular health. Um, we should all uh, worry about uh, these comorbidities. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Well, we should, all, we should all be paying attention to them. But that actually brings up, you you provided us with a series of some fascinating charts. I'm going to interject uh, the first one at this point. And so um, one of the graphs that you provided me with is USA all states versus all countries in Europe. And when we pull that up and we look at it to orient people on this chart, and this will be provided in the overlay, we have cases per 100,000 population on the x-axis. So this is effectively the frequency of diagnosed cases. Mm -hmm. And on the y-axis, we have deaths per 100,000. And so one of the things that jumps out, you've split here the rest of the world, uh, basically Europe, right? So I'm sorry, in Europe, relative to U.S. states. And you mentioned New York, New Jersey, Connecticut, and I'd also add Massachusetts to this. We have extraordinarily 
aggressive outcomes in terms of fatality rates in places like New Jersey and New York uh, and also Connecticut and Massachusetts relative to the aggregate experience of the U.S., even without accounting for that, we seem to have much lower severity of outcomes in the United States than we saw in Europe. And that's surprising to me because if I look at states like Alabama or Florida that seem to have experienced some of the least um, adverse outcomes relative to the number of cases, you know, the, it surprises me because those states tend to have high levels of comorbidity, right? Um, you know, I would single out Alabama as one of the states that is regularly presented as among the most obese, right? Right. So what's your, do you have a hypothesis on what's happening here? Well, first, uh, I want to explain why we look at things in the uh, per 100,000. And that's okay. because uh, different places have different populations. And this is a way that we can compare them in sort of a like-to-like -like, um, mm -hmm. manner. And so it seems that the states that got hit early really suffered worse than those that were hit later. And maybe this is we've um, improved our ability to treat patients. I mean, um, uh, now we put uh, patients uh, on their stomach. Um, I've heard it called adult tummy time. And we found that this really helps patients. So whichever uh, clever physicians figured that out, I think that they should be credited with saving thousands of lives. And so I think early on, we wanted to put patients on ventilators. And now I think we've learned uh, how to better treat these patients. And I really credit um, the hardworking doctors, scientific community, really trying to find better treatment uh, for patients. And I think just experience matters. And maybe we have learned to better treat COVID. Because if we look at the fatality rates early on uh, versus now, they're almost halved. Um, I know I saw a, a study um, um, looking for it for uh, in uh, LA County. And the uh, fatality rate early on was nearly um, twice what it is now. And so... Um, uh, I've seen many things sort of hypothesized, including viral attenuation. Um, and um, maybe it really just is a mixture of many different things, including that we are getting better at treating people. People are coming in earlier for treatment and, uh, and catching us with anything. If you can catch it early, you can keep it from progressing. Um, I, so, I so really before, before we before we move on from that, you use the phrase viral attenuation. Perhaps you can yes. define that for us. What does that mean? So viruses, um, they need us to, to live. And so they don't want to kill the host. And so there is this evolutionary pressure for viruses to be able to coexist uh, with their host. And so over time, viruses tend to attenuate um, so that they can live uh, with their host. Yeah, that becomes particularly important when we think about comparing outcomes for something like coronavirus, which is a novel virus into the, into the human species, right? So when we think about that dynamic, when it first makes the transition, it would not have had the opportunity to evolve to reduce its mortality rate effectively, to you know increase its ability to cohabit with its host. Um, is that... Well, I'm going to push back on one thing because okay, um, so. coronavirus is novel. There are four circulating coronaviruses that happen every year and cause pretty much what we call the common cold. 
uh, uh, SARS-CoV-2 is the novel coronavirus. So we actually have four circulating coronaviruses. And if you have young kids, chances are (laughs) you've had them and they cause the, the common cold. And so this one is a new entry into humans, which is why we call it uh, novel. You uh, absolutely stand corrected in terms of the use of the general phrase coronavirus. I actually, it was a very good correction on your part. Um, When we think about the SARS-CoV-2 and the dynamic of that being novel, though, what that actually means is is that it has not had the opportunity to learn to co-evolve with its human host, right? It was originally a virus that was designed for bats or, you know, uh, uh, any any, any other animal that it may have originated from. And so today we're looking at a situation where that has had, it, it, it is increasingly having the opportunity to mutate and evolve to deal mm-hmm. with the human host in a less fatal way, right? Because it is against its own self-interest right. to kill its host, right? We're, we're used to thinking about um, pandemics in terms of the fear component in, you know, obviously things like uh, Ebola or Zika viruses or various other things that, that, you know, tend to be very frightening in terms of their dynamics. Those tend to be isolated, repeated novel viruses effectively, right? So the Ebola virus is native to various monkey populations or, or no, no primate populations. Oh, they're bats. It's bats as well. Okay, thank you. Okay. So, so the Ebola virus is, is native to, to bats, but when we see the transmission of Ebola, we're actually seeing continued reinfection from a, a cross-species jump, right? It's not native in the, the human population in any way, shape, or form. Yeah, um, I am not sure if we know the natural reservoir for Ebola, but humans are definitely not the natural reservoir for, uh, for Ebola. And so um, the epidemiologists have traced um, the previous Ebola outbreak um, to, uh, to a bat, um, and there was believed to be bat to human transmission for Ebola. And so, when we when we hear about an Ebola outbreak, though, that's a no, that's a repeated novel transition trans uh, trans transition from human or from bat to human. Then in that situation, right? right this yeah. is not the spread that we're talking about with the dynamics associated with SARS-CoV-2, to use the technical term. So uh, the Ebola dynamics seem to be um, a bit different. Then um, with SARS, SARS-CoV-2 uh, seems to be much more infectious, um, though I, I don't want to make uh, viral comparisons. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, Ebola has a case fatality rate of up to 50%. It is yeah. truly um, sort of scary. And I'm, I'm very glad that, that it doesn't seem to transmit as easily as SARS-CoV-2, um, which, uh, which is a, a good thing. But um, yes, it does seem to be from a zoonotic uh, spread, so where it jumps from um, an animal host to a human. And uh, this is similar for, you know, uh, swine flu, avian flus, mm-hmm. when, they, um, when they jump species. And, um, but back to your point with um, the coronaviruses. So um, uh, there has been uh, quite a few reports. Um, there's a great paper in uh, Cell about... Um, T cell or cross-reactive T cells um, from these four circulating uh, regular, I guess I'll call them regular, uh, coronaviruses, showing that um, there's cross-reactivity of these T cells to this novel uh, SARS-CoV-2 virus. So it's not completely novel in that um, 
it's been estimated anywhere from 20 to 50 percent of people have cross-reactive uh, T cells to this novel virus. And, and so, just to—I'm sorry—just to, to interrupt for a second and to put that into language, because this is, I think, one of the challenges, and I certainly share it as well. Mm-hmm. The scientific community knows what cross-reactivity means oh, in T cells. Yeah. And the, the general population may not have exposure to that. But so just very quickly, T cells are used in the immune response. They are effectively the hunter cells in your body that um, go after the, uh, the, the virus itself to target the virus. And so what you're saying is that the circulating characteristics of these four coronaviruses in the human population means that some segment of the population has a form of immunity in terms of an elevated immune response to the coronavirus, the SARS-CoV-2, when it is introduced into their system, their body is prepared to fight it already. Is that a fair right, characterization? So, uh, let's uh, back it up just a little bit. So um, I just want people to know I am not an immunologist, but I, I have read a lot of immunology papers and I've been in infectious disease, uh, specifically HIV, where we study T cells quite, uh, quite thoroughly. And so there's sort of, uh, sort of your humoral immunity, you know, your B cells, your antibodies. And mm-hmm. so B is for, for bone marrow. And so you have these antibodies. And this is what people were talking about. You know, these are these little sort of Y-shaped things that you see. And they attack. And they attach to um, the virus. They neutralize it. And then you have your T cells. And people think of these more as your white blood cells. Mm-hmm. And so you have... Uh, sort of different types of T cells. Um, uh, We look at CD4 and CD8. And so these have little markers on their cell surface. And these can be very long lived. So antibodies um, can can fade over time. And we are seeing that um, the antibody response uh, can, for some people, uh, wane over time. And that, that is actually perfectly normal. Uh, for that to happen. But your T cells, remember, and this has your, these memory T cells have long lived uh, memory. And this is how humans have evolved to fight pathogens. It doesn't need to always have its little soldiers, these antibodies out um, all the time because uh, the T cells can be called up. It's like, aha, I recognize that and um, put the army. I think of um, especially the sort of the CD4 T cells, sort of like as the generals directing everybody like, oh, here, I need you guys to mount this response and, and do this. And so in several studies, they looked at blood donors uh, who had given blood before SARS-CoV-2 came around, and they looked to see, hey, I wonder if uh, these people have T cells that could recognize SARS-CoV-2 because they're coronaviruses. And so uh, they did the experiment and found, oh my goodness, uh, 20 to up to 50% of people had these T cells that could, um, they don't directly recognize um, SARS-CoV-2 because it is novel, but but they could mount a response. It's like, aha, uh, you're a coronavirus, I recognize you. And so um, it has been hypothesized, but not proven, that perhaps these are the people that have these asymptomatic um, infections or, because uh, there are people that get infected, they don't even know they were infected. And it has been hypothesized, but not proven, that perhaps these people have these cross-reactive T cells. And uh, my own hypothesis is people that have young kids, uh, uh, daycare, uh, people that work in daycares, pediatricians, because they're so 
constantly inundated with uh, coronaviruses um, because children, if you have young children, you know, they always seem to have a, a one cold or another just year round. And uh, so perhaps these uh, people um, have these cross-reactive T cells. So, and, and, and effectively, as you said, these are like generals, or this is, um, I would think of it more like a village medicine man, right? Effectively, somebody who has knowledge of what to do in this situation, mm -hmm. right? So effectively, that could be a significant fraction. We have seen this sort of data that suggests that, and this can be confusing because it leads to statistics that lead people to overestimate the quantity of the population that would be infected if you simply do an antibody test, for example, on a general population, right? So it, it makes it very confusing when we think about right. this sort of stuff. But you also brought up this other component in terms of treatment. And, and so this is a very delicate political subject because I think it's important, you know, I often use the example of doctors from the Black Death, right, where it's very easy for us to make fun of them with their beaked masks and their leeches, but they were doing the best that they could at the time, right? And so when you talk about the initial infection wave, the first exposures in the United States, particularly those in New York, New Jersey, or in Italy, uh, or areas like San Marino, which sticks out on your chart, for example, um, that you have a situation in which those individuals were treated by doctors who did not yet have a standardized protocol, did not benefit from the insights of adult tummy time or the idea that, well, it's a, it's a respiratory disease. These individuals are struggling to breathe, and therefore, naturally, we should introduce ventilation, which is a, it, an incredibly invasive experience, right? You're intubating somebody, pushing something down. It requires them to be anesthetized, it, you know, like all sorts of dynamics associated with it that raise, that have their own uh, morbidity factors, right? Mm -hmm. And so as we offer those types of improvements in real time, what you're suggesting is the data says we're meaningfully improving the outcomes, right? This is no different than cancer treatment in, in the 18th century relative to cancer treatment today, right? It's just we're seeing it happen in real time and our experience base is growing rapidly. Does that seem like a fair assessment? So I'm not quite sure exactly why, but I think that is a fair um, uh, characterization. I really think that our medical treatment has advanced. Um, we're also um, finding a lot more asymptomatic people, you know, as we are increasing our testing. And uh, perhaps these people are not likely to um, uh, have high rates of morbidity and mortality. So I think there's a lot of factors going on because early on, we were only, um, we were sort of rationing testing for those who are most likely to have uh, morbidity and mortality. And so when you look at the infection, it's almost like it's a conditional probability. You know, a probability that you're infected conditioned on the fact that you're in a high-risk group. And, and so when you look at the case fatality rates that way, they are much higher than when if you're um, having a asymptomatics put in there. Well, and, and it also speaks, though, to the cumulative dynamic of innovation, right? And so invest, uh, people listening to this will tend to be investors. They're familiar with the concepts of productivity enhancement as it relates to an economy. You know, when you think about something like coronavirus, well, we all search for the magic bullet, right? The vaccine, right. the cure, et cetera. Um, you know, just in, in really simple terms, if you think about 50 innovations, each of which offer a 1% improvement, cumulatively, those activities are going to result in a 
you know, roughly 40% increase of outcomes, right? right? Improvement of outcomes. And so that would very much fit with the data set that we're looking at here that you're showing us. Correct. Right? In other words, doctors are doing their jobs and getting better at what they do in this process. I believe so. I mean, uh, yeah, the uh, the medical community has been um, amazing. And they're, uh, I think like we are, they're scanning the medical literature. These preprint uh, servers are probably been uh, uh, blossoming so that uh, people can get out information uh, as fast as they can. And so, um, you know, I talk with uh, my friends who are working in hospitals and uh, they're communicating, you know, like, hey, um, uh, we're finding that people um, are having uh, clots, you know, not like platelet clots, but like fibrin clots. And so they're trying uh, blood thinners. And so it's really uh, medicine is moving at a very fast pace. And these doctors are working tirelessly to try and find um, ways to prevent patients from, from dying, to really treat them. And, and so that then brings up the second chart that I wanted to show that you shared with us, which is the USA exclusive, so without New York, New Jersey, Connecticut, Massachusetts, and, and you could reasonably exclude a few other states that are included in there, versus the European experience, for example, mm -hmm. right? And so it's generally accepted that Europe was hit first and more aggressively with this. We certainly saw this in Italy, for example. But if I look at the United States and I compare those two lines now, right? So I've taken out those states that had the initial wave of infections that not fully understanding the ramifications of what they were dealing with, um, chose to send infected individuals into nursing homes, which you highlight as a, a significantly vulnerable population. Yes. All of a sudden we see a radical change in these charts, right? So the, the, the outcomes are quite different. Um, in the United States versus what we saw in Europe. And I think this is part of what we've seen in terms of the outcomes being far less severe in the United States than we may have seen elsewhere in the world. Could you, does that feel right to you that, that that's a reasonable way to look at this? Yeah, so um, uh, somebody asked me a question. I'm like, oh, we have the data. Let's, um, this is a testable hypothesis. And as, um, uh, statisticians, we we really like to um, uh, to test hypotheses, and so I just pulled the data from COVID tracking project and also for the European Centers for Disease Control because they make their data um, very accessible. You can download it, and um, I like to make my code uh, available for for anybody that wants to do these type of uh, analyses. And um, and so remember that some of our states are as large or even larger than some of these countries. And so I'm like, well, let's not look at the US as a whole because if you think about it, we're sort of like 50 different uh, countries, at least in terms of population, but also just uh, demographics and, and everything else. So I'm like, okay, let's look at the US and let's just look at um, the countries uh, in Europe. And so, and I didn't define Europe, I um, used uh, the European Centers for Disease Control um, definition of Europe because they um, have a column that looks, they call it continent. And so, and just plotted death per hundred uh, versus um, uh, cases per hundred and just uh, did a very simple regression. And yes, I, um, there is some heteroscedasticity in Europe, but um, that just means that we don't have the minimum variance estimator, but the, um, the slope coefficient 
is unbiased. And so when you look at these, I, uh, even though the variance might be, might be um, not quite correct, uh, at least for Europe, um, which tend to have a bit more heteroscedasticity because uh, some of them, you know, like Isle of Man, there's, there's just very few people, very few cases. Um, uh, so in there, but the regression lines are an unbiased or the regression coefficient is an unbiased estimate. And um, when I put in a dummy variable for uh, Europe versus EU, it is significant. So when when I think about a couple of the terms you use there, so just very quickly, heteroscedasticity. Can you explain that for for our listeners? Of course, uh, that means non-constant variance. And so when you see things that get, um, uh, when you look sort of at the residuals, you can see that as cases increase, the uh, residuals, which is sort of you think about it, the distance from the regression line to the point, uh, gets higher. And um, and so we don't really have. Um, uh, constant variance, which is one of the assumptions of uh, the regression model. But uh, my purpose here was not to do regressions and to do modeling. I just wanted to show some very simple graphics so that people could get a handle of this uh, visually. Because I really like simple models because I think they're really easy uh, to understand. And then, of course, when I, I show this, people are like, oh, well, what if you did a regression? So I'm like, oh, okay. So I'll do that. But the, the purpose of this was not to do regression. And, you know, I did a Boxcox transformation, which still um, didn't quite um, do the trick. But uh, you can, but I wanted to keep it in uh, the native scale because I think it's just easier for people to see. And then you can look at, and so I just plotted each of them and, you know, with little pointers to where every country is. Because people are like, oh, well, what about this country? What about this country? And so in just one simple infographic, you, you can look at it. I like and it, and it, is, it is really quite clear that there's quite a substantive difference in terms of these coefficients. And so this can be thought of as, you know, there's two ways to look at this scenario, right? One is that the U.S. has done a relatively poor job of containing the number of cases per 100,000. But the other side of that equation is is that the severity of the outcomes are much lower in the United States. And if I'm taking a diagnostic role, it's impossible for me to articulate whether that's a, a function of the quality of care, whether that's a function of the improvement over time, as you're highlighting. You and I talked about the dynamics of introducing what's called a change point model, mm -hmm. which effectively introduces as a variable time in the process or an experience curve type dynamic that says we're getting better and better at this and let's control mm -hmm. for that in terms of understanding. And so that's a more um, robust analysis that you're currently in process on. Mm -hmm. But we're one of the things that you're doing is, is you're actually trying to prepare the tools that would allow people to begin to visualize and look at this sort of stuff so that we can begin to understand the ramifications of what's happened, both from a policy standpoint with less focus on, I mean, this is one of the ways it becomes politically charged is wanting to point at people and say, you made a mistake, right? Well, right. we all make mistakes when faced with a novel situation, right? The question right. is, do we learn from those mistakes? And so everything I'm seeing in your data sets actually suggests that we are learning from our mistakes and we are getting better. And so then the next question I would just ask you is, as you think about the policy implications of this, right? Well, it was certainly true that this was a very, you know, a, a very dangerous and um, uh, risky question in terms of becoming infected with coronavirus or becoming exposed to coronavirus early in this pandemic. 
as you think about the policy choices, would you be making different choices today relative to choices that you might have made six months ago? Yeah, I think the policy um, definitely would change. I think uh, we did not realize at first how dire the situation would be in nursing homes. I think perhaps we uh, did not protect people in nursing homes as best as we should. I think we should have perhaps um, saved a lot of our testing for people that worked in the nursing homes and the residents because they are at the absolute highest um, risk of, um, of morbidity and mortality. And so I think we know that now, and uh, I hope now that we are doing a much better job in protecting our most vulnerable, which are people uh, in nursing homes. And now we also know that people with uh, comorbidities are also at higher risk and um, try to protect these people more. And so I think if our policy recommendations really were um, more towards protecting the nursing homes, I mean, it's 41 percent of our, our of deaths. And I know it's very hard to um, to stop a respiratory virus, but um, perhaps uh, if we were to do it all over again, um, we would find ways to better protect uh, our nursing home population. Well, I, so and I would emphasize that we can't do it all over again, right? right. I would, I would. Um, the only thing we can do is we can change our behaviors going forward. And the less we focus on blame, the less likely we are to experience people trying to justify and defend the actions that they made in the past. And I think that's Correct. it's one of the hardest components associated with this, right? Well, I uh, was quite vocal in my objections to the shutdown early on. We did the shutdowns. And so now the question becomes, how do we emerge from them? Correct. And so the, the communication that you would share is ultimately at this stage, we need to really focus our emphasis on protecting the vulnerable populations from here. But increasingly, this is a less risky disease for those of us who are in the general population and who would be broadly what I would describe as economically active, right? And so in many ways, what you're saying is forget what's happened in the past. Let's start to get this thing open again, right? And let's start to address the idea that the cure is increasingly becoming worse than the disease, that the economic outcomes need to be uh, become increasingly front and center. Does that sound like a fair characterization? Well, um, so I think it's a false dichotomy of health versus economics, because we need to remember that uh, uh, that no that unemployment, uh, being locked down, has risks of its own. And mm -hmm. so there is no, um, there's no free lunch. There's risks involved with uh, everything, and there's trade-offs. And so um, by locking down, we are, we're forcing uh, a lot of the burden onto our youngest, most vulnerable population, those that really don't have a voice. And so as a society, we need to really uh, sit down, come together, and figure out how are we going to distribute these costs. Um, there are risks for every everything, and uh, just shutting down does not eliminate those risks because we still have um, malnutrition. So many children get their nutrition from school. School is a safe haven. Um, many of them um, 
receive their food there. There are so many Americans that are food insecure, and it's increasing. Uh, UNICEF is expecting for these worldwide lockdowns that 10,000 children per month are going to die of malnutrition, and another half a million will have um, uh, sequelae related to malnutrition. And so it's not just the U.S., it's sort of worldwide. Um, and we know that um, schools are also primary um, sources for reporting of child abuse. And it's also a structure for them, not, not just mentioning um, education. I mean, McKinsey is expecting uh, from their report that we can see up to 10% of dropouts. And these, uh, these children are at risk of decreased economic uh, opportunities from, from dropping out. And we also know that those with limited economic opportunities have worse health outcomes. And these could be very long-term. And so we really need to think about what are the long-term and short-term costs associated with this. And are we as a society going to say that the youngest, most vulnerable part of our population is going to um, have the brunt of the burden of this? And we just need to have an honest discussion on this. There are no good solutions here. We have this virus, and yes, it is killing people. But we need to come together and not just talk about part of the issue. And you're like, oh, no, no, people are dying, people are dying. But people are dying because of lockdowns as well. And so we need to be able to balance the risks. People that um, that have comorbidities that are, are at high risk, they... Um, they should be protected, but we have to look at how we can balance the risk for everybody, because right now it is not being borne equally. Well, I, so I would actually suggest that, unfortunately, what we're seeing with our reaction function, right, the policies that we have enacted, that we are increasingly unwilling to back away from, I would argue, for what appear to be increasingly political reasons, we've effectively shifted the burden from those who are most vulnerable from a health standpoint to, as you're highlighting, those who are most vulnerable from an economic standpoint, right? And as you're correctly pointing out, the two are not mutually exclusive. Poor economic outcomes lead to long-term poor health outcomes for many of those most affected, right? Okay. So um, as, as we look forward and we're beginning to run out of time here, um, you are generously beginning to put forward tools that can be used by individuals to review the data sets and to see them in a more visual framework. Um, where could people gain access to those tools as they are developed and to monitor the development of those tools? Um, I need to put it on my uh, GitHub repository. Uh, so right, right now it lives on my computer and I was um, developing a Shiny app and I will get you uh, the website. I've been uh, so busy that it... It's um, hard for me to, um, I can do these tools, but uh, just to make them uh, more publicly available, but um, on GitHub for sure. And um, well, you had actually, you, you had mentioned to me that you were going to take advantage of one of the most parentally vulnerable, your 13 year old son to try to get this into an app for you. So um, uh, speaking for the, for the Real Vision viewers, I would encourage him to get to his homework and, uh, and, and get this up and ready for us. We'd very much appreciate it. Um, in, in terms of a link to GitHub, ultimately you can provide that with us. We'll make that available to our viewers. 
Um, and I just speaking as a, a member of the public and somebody who has been following this in, in terms of process, I really appreciate you taking the time and effort to educate us. One of the challenges, I think, and it was it was clear in this conversation that often scientists and lay people speak in terms that are difficult to cross, you know, the, the borders and so across the, the barrier between the, the two of us. One of the things that I would, would uh, like to close with is actually a discussion that we brought up earlier, this idea of women in STEM and minorities in STEM. And, and you actually represent both populations. And so mm -hmm. as you were sharing with me, your, your grandfather was a first generation, likely illegal immigrant from Mexico to, to the United States. Um, can, you, can you share a little bit of that story? Because I think it's actually quite powerful to think of in this context. Yes. Um, so my grandfather came to this country. I um, He didn't know how to read or uh, write and taught himself uh, English. And, um, and my grandmother also uh, did not have uh, an education. They um, made their way to uh, the south side of Chicago, where my grandfather worked in the steel mill for his whole life. And uh, he was a registered uh, alien. So um, uh, so he did uh, register and ha had his green card. And uh, and they really saw uh, education as um, the way out. And so uh, my father um, and uh, took chalk spray paint and made uh, his bedroom, which he shared with um, his four brothers, uh, into a chalkboard because paper was expensive and really uh, stressed education. My uh, father became a theoretical nuclear physicist, and uh, he's retired now, and now he actually uh, runs a woodworking school, the Southwest uh, School of Woodworking in Phoenix, because uh, his um, his grandparents were and his father were, were, were woodworkers as well as a hobby, and he feels it's a lost art, so he is um, keeping that there, but he uh, instilled in... Um, my sisters and I just um, education and really instilled in me uh, a love of math and that um, I'm trying to instill it in my kids because, um, and actually in uh, any young kid, I really encourage young people to really um, learn math. It's a beautiful language. Um, if you think about it, it is the only language uh, uh, throughout the world from, uh, from South America, North America, Asia, Africa, we've all agreed um, on a language which, which is mathematics. And, and I think that there is a beauty in that, that um, the even very ancient civilizations, you know, from uh, ancient Africa, ancient Asia, uh, uh, Arabia, you know, uh, Arabs gave us zero. They all had uh, mathematics you know, the ancient philosophers um, in, in Greece, too. But it's like every civilization had the had mathematics as um, as a basis. And we've all come together as humans to have one set of rules for mathematics. And here I really um, think that there can be a lot of unity uh, in mathematics because they're uh, an equal sign really means equal. What, what is on one side must be uh, on the other. And we have this set of rules. And, um, and I think that, that there's real truth and beauty in it. And so I encourage every young person uh, to consider um, careers in mathematics, especially biostatistics. Please come to UCLA. <laughs> uh, we'd love to have you. 
because there's real power in, in statistics. And, you know, you have questions, we have answers. And so uh, if there's one really good thing that has come from COVID is really getting people interested in data and data analysis. And mathematics is the language of data. And if, uh, if you uh, learn it, you will have the whole world open up to you. Well, I think that's a wonderful note to end on. I would actually, again, highlight that most of most, you mentioned woodworking as being a lost art. I would actually suggest mm -hmm. that mathematics tends to be camouflaged in the concept of theoretical mathematics, right? Stuff that is typically beyond, certainly beyond my mathematical capability, but you and I specialize in effectively applied mathematics, right? Which is mm -hmm. the use of the language of mathematics to solve the problems that we face on a day-to-day -day basis. And that is, to me, part of the message of COVID. And I agree with you that it's one of the really hopeful things is what I'm seeing is an increase in broader interest in the applicability of these problems and these problem-solving tools to the, to the world we face today. So I am very, very hopeful that both our citizens and our politicians can actually benefit from these insights. Again, thank you for your time and effort, and I really look forward to continuing to talk with you in the future. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Christina. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.